Everyone you talk to seems to have an opinion on what's going to happen to the property market over the year. On an individual level, most of these should be taken with a grain of salt. However, en masse, these opinions can be extremely valuable. After all, consumer confidence, or lack thereof, is what underpins market behaviour. So, what are the masses saying about 2022? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au In 2020, REBA, that's the Real Estate Buyers Agents Association of Australia, joined forces with Property Talk Australia to launch their first Buyer Barometer Survey, which unsurprisingly in hindsight showed that the vast majority of Australian home buyers and investors were undeterred by the events of 2020 and forged ahead with their property investment plans despite COVID-19. Now, recently, they've just released the results of this second survey, and I've asked REBA President Kate Bacos to join us and share with us the findings. What clues will it contain about the year ahead? Thank you for joining us today, Kate. It's always a pleasure and this one is quite dear to my heart. We've put a lot of work into it and we had a lot of support, a really broad community, so I'm thrilled to be on the show. Well, that's brilliant. And look, before we launch into the survey results, can you sort of give us a quick overview about how the survey was conducted, how many participants, so I guess how statistically significant are these results? Yeah, absolutely. We had a, a little bit of a, a conversation with the, the guys that run PTA, uh, guys and girls, and they were really keen to combine forces and to see what we could tease out of what's already an extraordinarily large community. So PTA have over 13,000 members and anyone who's familiar with this Facebook group will understand what sort of information sharing and conversations go on within the group. And all very dedicated, either property buyers, investors, or they're watching the property market and they're obviously keen to all share their knowledge. So uh, we had the the reach out and obviously tapping into REBA allowed us to combine forces and to craft some questions that we thought would be really relevant. And then we could present our findings and and obviously go out to the media as well and and be able to share some of this information about the, the Australian property market. So that's how it began. And some of our members have been able to share the survey link uh, with their clients. But broadly, I think PTA did a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of how many respondents we had. We were aiming for over a 1,000 and we didn't quite get there on two consecutive years. And I think part of that is probably around when you run the survey. Last time we were hovering over the Christmas period thinking maybe we could catch respondents during the holiday time when they've got a bit more free time. And this year we thought we'd press on before Christmas struck and obviously, you know, people are very busy at the moment. So next time around we'll be aiming for even more than a 1,000 people. But so far we've got a really good breadth of information and I think what was really telling was just how compelling some of the answers are and maybe not necessarily answers that we're expecting. So what were some of the, I guess, more surprising findings then? People were, as you said in the intro, quite undeterred. And I I think when we look at 
how jittery the market got leading into the federal election in 2019 and then how many people panicked when COVID hit our shores and then the, the series of lockdowns. We've heard a lot in the media and you read a lot about people that put all of their plans on hold and get really nervous about market downturns. And what was interesting with this contingent is that wasn't really the case. And I think it's fair to describe um, the, the community on PTA and I think acknowledging that they're not just, you know, your average Joe when it comes to someone out there with a half an opinion on property. They're people who are generally pretty engaged with talking to property professionals and sharing knowledge and they're thinking and feeling property every day. And a lot of them are wanting to be quite informed. So we're dealing with a, a different, I guess, um, contingent for this survey than if you just walked out onto the street and asked people what they thought. These people don't necessarily get all of their information on today tonight. So <laughs> it would be fair to, you know, call them a bit more of a sophisticated contingent. And if you are aware of the market forces and the, the drivers and, and the threats to your investment strategy, you, you'll obviously have, you know, a reasonably good um, plan in place and you'll be able to weigh up the risks accordingly. And, and what really shone through with this group was they didn't get the marketers like we've we've seen in the media or, or heard about when people have been responding to, you know, to difficult challenges. Interesting you say that because I know that, look, I'm a member of REBA, but um, and at first I thought, oh, look, this is not going to be great. If, if it just has the respondents being, you know, clients of buyers agents, for instance, they're going to look at the world a bit differently to somebody who does it themselves. And I, I'm not actually a member of Property Talk Australia group myself. I'm a member of a number of other ones. And I'm, I guess I'm making an assumption that the sort of makeup is often quite similar. You know, people that are interested in property, they're still quite wide-ranging opinions and they will, uh, you've got people ranging from the full-on DIY right through to people who will use a buyer's agent and want to be more informed when they use a buyer's agent. And I think that that needs to be a growing cohort to my, in my view. Um, so in a way, it's not really the people on the street and yet the people on this, and I guess the big question is, are the people on the street more important in the sense that the more of a knee-jerking in response to the the headlines that you'll see on, on the news uh, in the newspapers and um, on the, the the news bulletins, are they more important as a cohort to understand, or is it that they're not as active anyway, and so therefore that doesn't really matter? Are we looking therefore at a more active cohort? I don't I don't know the answer to that. I'm just sort of yeah, it's a, it out it's a great one to ponder. Yeah, mm. I love I love the question itself because I think everyone is, you know, the, the overarching point that I would make is if we could profile everyone, I would. I would have loved to have, you know, a <laughs> census effort. But it was it was really great to get a broader than just um, buyer's agent clients kind of response because when we look at the PTA participants, we've got first-home buyers, we've got people who haven't done anything yet, they're, they're just interested in learning more about property, we've got lots of DIYs, we've got um, sophisticated investors and interestingly we've got a really varied age group we've got an enormous spread so facebook it, it definitely cuts down the limitations of you know geographical um distance because you can all get on facebook whether you've you know at the northern mm. tip of queensland or whether you're an outback whatever and we've we've been able to get an enormous um, array of respondents that are in regional towns capital cities and it's really captured such a wide breadth. So I think there was a lot of value in that. Interesting. So 
Just before we sort of get into the specific things that uh, might point to where things may head in 2022, are there any key differences in the results from a year ago? Yes, we, we saw the regions emerging and also Queensland is, is definitely featuring on the, the, the map for where people are either investing or buying mm. or planning to invest or planning to buy. And that's not a great surprise because we've now looked at the data, but what's really interesting is we, we were able to put this survey out quite some time ago and it's really been a little bit of an indicator or a predictor and it just goes to show that the power of, of lockdowns and, um, and states that people see uh, opportunity in to invest in, that, that was quite telling. Uh, what was also telling was um, people that were impacted by things like rental eviction moratoriums. We heard a lot about this in the news, but it was a very surprisingly low figure of people who were actually impacted by that. And I think it goes to show that, you know, news, bad news sells. That is interesting. We'll get to the rental side of things um, a little further on. But so you're basically saying that Queensland's the most desirable property location for 2022. Is there a breakdown? Of, uh, and what makes me laugh when you look at the actual, you know, ABS data, for instance, is it's Brisbane and rest of Queensland. Yes. <laughs> Queensland's <laughs> a very big state. Um, yes. Was there anything more specific than just Queensland? Was there sort of a Brisbane versus regional or, you know, is there more insights into that? Yes, we did. Uh, we, we split some of our questions to try and, and get a bit of a gauge as to whether people would pursue the regions as well. And of course, the regions have outperformed for 2021. And, and a lot of people will look at that and think, great, let's jump onto, onto that bus because it's going the hardest. And it, it's not meant to be like that. You know, we've had an exceptional year. But I didn't segment the question around Brisbane versus the rest of regional Queensland. And we you know, the challenge with any survey is keeping it to two mm. minutes as opposed to 30 minutes. But certainly Queensland and the regions were, were very much front and centre. And that, that's no surprise at all. And a lot of people, you and I both know this, if something goes really well, everyone wants to jump on the yep. horse that's winning the race. And I think that when it comes to property investing, you know, diversification and, and understanding the drivers is the most critical thing. Yeah, and that's a good point that you make there because unfortunately a lot of people do pile in and which is, mm. then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, prices rise because everyone's going, yeah, prices are rising, let's pile in there, therefore prices rise until they don't anymore. Um, now, what is driving that? I mean, affordability, work from home, I, I, pre I presume all of these things are underpinning that attention towards uh, Queensland. What, how would you say the survey sort of, well, what light did the survey results sh shine on that? Look, it showed that 38% of all buyers looking to um, to make a purchase decision were, were focusing on Queensland, which is a really big spread. And we can only assume that that would be led by, um, obviously, the growth that, that the region and the city is is delivering, but also freedoms associated with limited lockdowns and, and the work from home phenomenon. So that certainly came into play in this survey as well. Working conditions dictating property decisions. 40% um, of people said that current working conditions definitely influence their buying decisions. So, you know, it was pretty crystal clear that, that the ability to work from home is, is a big driver in people's confidence in an area, whether they're going there for themselves to live or whether they're making an investment decision. And is, that, is there any difference from now to a year ago with regards to that or is it pretty constant? No, there is a bit of a difference, but we did mix up our, our questions 
quite a bit because we wanted to focus on the impact that COVID has had on the way that we think about property and and our property investment strategies. And obviously we didn't really focus on it so much last year, but but this time around, it, it definitely um, highlighted that it has impacted people's plans to uh, invest and also where they're choosing to live. Now, a lot of um, surveys that that are out there are particularly directed towards investors rather than owner-occupiers. And I know this survey sort of looked at both sides of it. Was there any anything, was there any differences in there that you could detect? You know, the owner-occupier mentality versus the investor mentality? Uh, what we did find is people's um, feeling around boom conditions, that, that was certainly a common theme. Almost half thought that the boom conditions would continue into 2022. And and a lot of people felt that um, that they might have been priced out of the market. So 64% said that they had been priced out of the areas they planned to buy in. And that's a really telling statistic. And did the survey sort of go into all, well, if you feel priced out, what is your response? So what's the next step for them? What we did go into is where would you like to focus your next move, which was when we, we teased out regions and Queensland. That was quite a, a compelling stat. But unfortunately, with the breadth of intention, so owner-occupier, upgrader, downsizer, first-home buyer, and you've got your rent investors and your investors, we couldn't really get into every single um, category and then ask them to detail exactly what their next move was. But we tried to, to keep it as general as we could to, to eke out some of these responses and understand whether attitudes had changed in response to COVID and to lockdowns. Because mm. confidence about the market and the way it performs um, is a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, it can simultaneously drive both FOMO in some and also complete inaction in others. You know, for some people who feel that they're priced out, that might, you know, they might respond by going and getting more money or or moving to a different area or, or doubling down or just buying the, the next thing that they find. You know, that FOMO mm. drives pretty crazy decisions and others might just dig their heels in and go, that's it, I'm going to bunker down and wait till this is all over. You know, they yes. may be rewarded but the odds are against them, you know, timing that bunkering down. Is there any particular way you can measure how people are reacting to the heat in the market? Yes, if their intention is still to buy or if they're still actively looking, that, that is quite telling. I think what I was expecting to see across this group was maybe some contrarian investing attitudes either being talked about or pursued, but we didn't see any of that. I didn't um, see, get a sense for, for people wanting to return to the city yet, and maybe we asked the questions too early because I'm seeing now in my day-to-day -day travels with prospects and clients, the city is um, holding a lot of appeal for people, and I've even had some contrarian and people talk to me about coming back to the CBD. So at the time of the survey, I, I think that lockdown was probably still a really well wound <laughs> and certainly people's willingness to move further out or to head north was what, what was more um, more obvious. Well, I guess you're in Melbourne, I'm in Sydney. I mean, we're both experienced lockdowns, you guys more than us, um, whereas other states, like you mentioned, Queensland's had bugger all, right? They've been locked down for the rest they're locked down from the rest of the country, <laughs> but then they're not locked down in their own homes. And so I, I would imagine that, that and given that you've got quite a geographic spread on the respondents to this survey, that there's, you know, the concentrations of the impact on lockdown may vary. It is rather, 
I think what, what you mentioned earlier about the rental impact is rather interesting because, you know, like you say, that headlines, uh, negative headlines actually sell sell news and sell advertising, of course. Um, and there was a lot of talk about um, rental moratoriums and the impact on investors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But the results were a bit surprising here, weren't they? Um, Very. Yeah. I remember when... When COVID first really bit and then we went into lockdown, for me personally, my phone did not stop ringing the minute that the rental eviction moratorium was announced. I had lots of past clients, fresh past clients, wondering how it would impact them. You know, we don't want this in our backyard and understandable. I've got a portfolio. I was a little bit stressed about the idea of tenants deciding not to pay and me having no recourse. Mm. We've, we've all got mortgages to pay. And it was surprising. I had this deluge of calls and just thought, oh, my gosh, who would want to be a property manager right now? And I, I found that very few of our clients were actually impacted. And me personally, I was almost not impacted. We had one one uh, tenant who wanted a, a bit of a decrease and probably the tenant that didn't need it. But um, it, it wasn't something that bit. And once we got over that horrible deluge of inquiries and, and fearful people, it really did calm down. And I know that for landlords who own commercial property, particularly retail space, it would have been brutal. But for residential property investors, I, I didn't hear very much about it in my in my own backyard and with, with our past clients. And so this this survey result, considering you know how how much the the headlines were amplified and and you know these fearful um, news articles were were impacting us then and making us all feel quite nervous. The survey results are definitely in line with my own personal um, experience and and reflection of of what actually happened. And so, what did actually happen? How was it? Well, I guess what 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 does the survey tell us? Well, the survey says that only 8% of our participants were impacted by rental eviction moratoriums. Now, they could have been tenants, they could have been landlords, and 79% of participants were not impacted. So, the remain, remaining percentage there were presumably owner-occupiers without investment property. So, they weren't renters, they weren't landlords, they weren't impacted at all. But that's that's a pretty tiny number when you consider that a lot of this community are active investors, only 8% were impacted. And we didn't gauge the impact, whether it was full loss of rent or whether it was negotiating a smaller amount or offering a, a short-term discount with the balance to be repaid. I mean, they were typically the ways that we resolved things with tenants who were in distress. And considering how significant the headlines were, I just thought that was a, a very small number. It is actually a very small number. Um, I, me personally, I was impacted. I've been two properties that um, that I've had to reduce the rent. And I think the thing is that, you know, I certainly personally had the um, approach at the beginning of lockdowns in 2020 in March. And I thought, look, if we all pull our belts in a little bit, we'll all get through this. And, you know, and so I, I guess... Yeah, so I've, I guess I've lived and done what I said I felt was fair at the time. So I'm quite mm. happy with that. Um, and, you know, and I think the actual, um, it's interesting how things have unfolded because there have been certain segments of our, our population that have been more impacted than others. There's no doubt about that. But I, I know there was a lot of rush legislation through in every state because, of course, property le property, property legislation is state-based. Um 
and there was a lot of fear and a lot of confusion and there were daily updates from REI New South Wales and I imagine the REIV was the same and, yeah. you know, trying to interpret the mandates and then that was then translated into legislation and I wouldn't have wanted to be a property management manager at that time either. So it is interesting to see in the wash of it all that only 8% of these respondents have actually, and they're, you would assume, active in this market. Mm. Um, were impacted and and given that the impact could be as little as you know a very small concession versus you know whole periods of rent free if you like what you're hearing here please share this episode with others you feel would benefit and while you're at it why not leave us an itunes review five stars please every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say we love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener q a episodes please send your questions in you can send them via the website which is the elephant in the room.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Now, the other really um, interesting stat was around expectations for rental movement. Mm. So what, what we have seen through all of this is rents have really tightened around the country. It's pretty awful and I think we've got... Except, you know, except, except inner Sydney and inner Melbourne, except for that's that. That's right. <laughs> yes. Well, interestingly, they I look at the core logic figures every month and I'm just perplexed because we've got such an oversupply of, of rubbish one-bedroom units in Melbourne. And when when we got to the worst point of all of this, I think our, our rents for units were down 13%. You can just imagine in, in the middle of Melbourne, they're probably down like 50% mm. because we're just talking about a, a median figure. But I've watched that tighten now and our unit market in Melbourne is now in positive territory, which means that rents have just started to climb, indicating that our vacancy has reached equilibrium. And we've had no new arrivals. And I would consider that one bedders aren't all that exciting for for people to want to rent or buy. But our extreme stock shortage has seen a lot of desperate buyers turning to this type of stock. So we've reduced our available rentals because landlords have thought, ripper i'll offload this thing and buyers have come along bought them and so what it's really done is underpinned a tighter vacancy rate so across the board now for the first time since all of this struck all of our states and territories both capital city and regional markets are experiencing rental shortage and tighter vacancies and we do have a bit of a crisis on our hands because in certain markets it's really tough to get a rental and we've seen rents climb by over 30% in one year in some of our markets, which is really horrendous for for any tenant who's who's having to navigate that. Well, that's more of a, a particularly in regional um, areas, there's mm. um, very well-publicised pressures on rentals and very extremely low vacancy rates and, and rents going up yep. and real pressure and um, on the local the original local population, not the new local population, you know. And uh, anecdotally, I'm hearing a lot of stories regionally about people, uh, investors buying properties and not putting them into the rental pool. They're actually buying them for Airbnb-style um, market. So they've got an increased return, um, but, you know, obviously that decreases the um, the rental stock available in, the, in in a lot of areas, particularly those sorts of holiday areas. Yes. Does the survey go into why people think rents might go up? 
No, it doesn't. What we did get, though, was um, a measure on how many expect a decrease, how many expect an increase, and then how many think it will stay the same. And I was a little bit surprised by this one because I think it's a fair call to suggest that rents will just go up across the board based on those uh, economic indicators that we get each month. But 2% expect rents to decrease, and I did wonder to myself, are these people perhaps that own uh, underperforming assets in capital cities because they've been sustaining rental decreases over the, the mm. last few years anyway um, or, or are they just um, you know optimists about um, their their position on the property ladder as landlords and maybe oh, I don't know I, I couldn't work that <laughs> one out 69% expect an increase in rent and 30% expect rents to stay the same so that was that was interesting I, I've got a, a different outlook for rents I'm seeing them moving across the board at the moment Interesting enough, though, rents take a while to move, you know, because people sign a lease and, and typically that might be a 12-month lease and that, that rent isn't going to go up for 12 months and it, and it may not go up if they stay there either. Um, and so it's a long, much slower burn than, say, property prices. You know, property prices can start increasing or decreasing very, very quickly. Uh, it's, mm. it's, um, but the rental market is is a lot more difficult to predict and to well, when I say predict, actually, <laughs> anyone who reads our full forecaster report will know you can't predict anything, any accuracy. Yeah. But but certainly in terms of reading trends or, or whatever, I mean, it's the sale market is a lot more responsive to whatever's going on, whereas the property market has that delayed response. And I guess is what I'm trying to say there. Um, so it's interesting to see that intention. But I guess um, there are different forces rather than confidence that's going to drive rents up or down. You know, whereas sale prices right. is is much more determinant on uh, on confidence, right? Yes, very much so. I, I think when we do look at you know how COVID has contributed to um, to rental issues for tenants, so for tighter vacancy rates and and hiked up rents, obviously the the movement to the regions is is really hard because when you consider you know we're at 10,000 10, people leaving Sydney or leaving Melbourne doesn't really impact Sydney or Melbourne mm. when you get 10,000 people arriving in Bendigo that has a mm. massive impact on Bendigo so we we can segment some of these areas and look at them and think well we've got a deluge of people moving there because they're escaping lockdown or wanting life in the you know the seaside or the country we're also as you alluded to seeing people having two homes and mm. COVID created a lot of that. We saw people going and buying a holiday house. And if you're wanting it for personal use and you're trying to convince yourself that it's a great investment, typically you'll be there when it's, you know, when everyone else wants to be there. So you'll, you'll, you'll be in your own home um, compromising your own ability to get the best rental you could if it's a, a seasonality sort of holiday hotspot. But we, we certainly saw a, a lot of rental stock taken off the market because people earmarked them as their, their holiday house and then left their city pad vacant. So that's created a bit of an issue too. And, of course, where we're seeing some of the, the toughest rental increases in the markets that have been hit by, you know, as they call us, southerners <laughs> or anyone, you know, escaping the city. Mexicans. Yes. <laughs> I, I find it, I do find it quite, uh, remarkable, humorous, weird that, you know, you, you anecdotally I've been hearing this of interviewing so many people about this whole sea change, tree change thing for, for a long time, but obviously it's been accelerated through through lockdowns. And the idea that people would go and buy a second house rather than go skiing in Aspen, you know, <laughs> you know that I can't have a, a holiday overseas, so therefore I'm going to buy a house. 
And it seems ridiculous, and yet it, it appears that it's not as ridiculous as it might sound. And when I say it seems ridiculous, it's like, why would you base a property decision? Because, you know, for a little while, we might not be able to take an overseas holiday. I mean, it does smack of first world privilege, but, but it also is an interesting knee jerk. You know, it's like, do we need our yes. holidays that desperately? <laughs> I totally agree with you. I, I had an interview with Chris not long ago and you're Chris Bates and um, and he and I had the same approach when it comes to weighing up the the feasibility of, of buying a holiday house. You've got to run the cost-benefit analysis and you've got to look at the benefit that you get in just hiring an Airbnb however many times a year you might want to do it or mixing it up, going to all different mm. kinds of places and putting that money that you would have spent on a holiday house into an investment property that has, has you know, well-considered growth drivers and has actually been thought out for non-emotional reasons. Or do you want to buy that, you know, that block of land or that, that little place that's two hours away that you've got to go down and mow the lawn and pay all the <laughs> rates on and, you know, argue land with the tax. kids about all of that and who's going to clean it up, who puts the bins out. I mean, I thought it was a great conversation and, and I still maintain it, but you know what? I was um, I was outvoted big time in 2020 and 2021 because I even had past clients returning saying, "Can you help us buy our little piece of paradise?" And you know what? It, it didn't matter what logic I gave them. It was a, a really burning desire for a lot of people and that emotional need to have something that they could escape to. It just overruled all other considerations. And I think that's at the heart of it. It's a highly emotional decision and, you know, the elephant in the room is all about the, the subconscious mind driving our decisions. You might think that the rational mind's in charge, but generally speaking, it isn't. Um, yeah. And look, I, interestingly enough, I have had a weekender. I don't have it anymore. The reasons I don't have it is convoluted and long and not not uh, not for the purposes of this particular episode. Maybe <laughs> I'll do a story on it one day. And I sold it um Obviously, I didn't have it available to me. And at the beginning of lockdown, I thought to myself, I'm glad I don't have that property anymore. And then, you know, then sort of towards Christmas last year, that heading sorry, heading into 2020 Christmas, uh, I, I was thinking, oh, God, I wish I still had it. <laughs> be nice to and now just- that it's tripled in price. <laughs> yeah, that too, that too. Um, and who would have seen that on the horizon? Absolutely not. But it, it's just an interesting um I've so I've had the highs and lows of having having a weekender, and you know I get the emotional pull. I do, and I also get the rational side of things. Is that yeah, you are tied to one place, and you know, oh well, life is too short to be tied to one place, really. But um, it's very convenient just to rock up and have everything there, ready to go. There's no doubt about it. But it's it's a privilege. But then when you get into this this argument around um, regional uh, locations that are really hard hit in terms of um, you know availability of property for the locals, and I and I think that there's a bit of a sociological aspect to this conversation that um, I think you know needs a little bit more attention. I think that. You know, that whole, if we are privileged enough to be able to afford one, we may need just take a moment to think about people who are impacted by that decision. But anyway, that might just be me on a bandwagon. I think when you look at the South Coast and New South Wales in particular, you know, these guys, they had those absolutely ravaging bushfires. There are people two years down the track that are still living in caravans and sheds on their properties with outdoor showers, you know, that... Um, relief money hasn't made its way through insurance money hasn't made its way through 
you know, and yeah. I, I think that we have to remember that there are locals that are highly displaced, I think. Anyway, that let's, you know, <laughs> may no, not it's go a tra- it, It's a tragic, tragic thought and, yeah, I think it, it would weigh on a lot of people's consciences, so it's, um, it's well-deserving of a mention. Well, not only that, though, but here's the thing too, and I think what a lot of people may not realise when they're moving into these areas is that you, if you're moving into a regional area where the locals are actually building a level of resentment towards you, then, you know, I think that's something to just be aware of, your own comfort and enjoyment uh, as well. But anyway, that's that's a side issue. Now, are there any other aspects of this survey, uh, back to back to why we're having this, this conversation about this sort of biobarometer yeah, looking yeah. into 2022, any other aspects that, that uh, we need to, to tease out here? Yeah, this one, maybe it, it might have been the same response pre-COVID, but I thought it was an interesting stat and it's the last little headline I've got to share with you. When it comes to buying a property sight unseen. Oh. <laughs> now, <laughs> we, we heard a lot about this, particularly in Melbourne when we were in the middle of lockdown. The difference between Sydney's lockdown and Melbourne's lockdown in the world of property was that we couldn't go into a property at all. Mm. So your trading conditions, albeit challenging were still upheld because in Sydney you could arrange to go and see a property one-on-one and in Melbourne we we didn't have that and for a period of just slightly under three months we we couldn't see properties and so you know that that um sense of wanting to buy and beat the market or FOMO it was very evident because we were being asked by a lot of clients and new prospects to help them buy something sight unseen and it's a really it's a big risk. It's a dangerous business and it's very hard to to be able to, to do it with confidence, even with trusted people, because, you know, what one person sees, another one might not. So if you're mm. relying on videos or building inspectors or whatever, we saw a fair amount of, of that and there was a lot of conversation about it. Now, 50% of the respondents said that they would definitively not buy a property sight unseen and 19% said that they would do so without a qualified professional representing them. So the the remaining percentage would obviously be prepared to buy sight unseen if they had a qualified property um, professional representing them. That might be a buyer's agent or it might mm. be a property manager they trust or whoever. But, you know, 50% saying they'd definitively not buy a property, that, that's a, a really strong um, figure. But um, 19%, so one-fifth would buy without a qualified professional representing them. I think that's a scary statistic. That's alarming. I mean, I, mm. anecdotally, I heard many stories of people, like you said, you know, trying to beat the market. Knowing, particularly after the second lockdown, knowing what happened after the first lockdown, people yeah. think, "Well, there's going to be a surge of prices. Let's get on the band, get on the bandwagon here." Um, I, my personal feeling is, if anyone thinks that it's okay to buy sight unseen, it's because they haven't been burnt. They haven't actually seen what yeah. could go wrong, and and then maybe they might change their thinking. I'm I'm actually alarmed, and this is sort of a side issue here. And you know, I haven't sort of talked to you about this. I don't think we've discussed this. Um, fly in, fly out, buyers agents. You know that that the borderless buyers agent that doesn't actually uh, reside or or is not a local specialist in the area in which they buy, and through COVID, through lockdown, haven't been able to do their fly in, fly out. You know. Um, activity and for anyone listening to this who hasn't sort of heard of this concept it's these it's very data-driven buyers agents who decide that certain areas are great to invest in they and then they basically put together a 
a position or a, a pitch on a location and they sell that into all their clients, then they go and buy up an area and then obviously they end up pushing prices up and it's self-fulfilling prophecy. And a lot of the local buyers agents in these areas are often scratching their heads and the sales agents for that matter are put, rubbing their hands together in glee because they're thinking, yeehaw, we're actually getting some great transactions from people who don't know good from bad. And so this is a real danger um, for the clients of these type of buyers agent. And they were curtailed through this period and so they weren't even able to inspect. And I know that some of them don't inspect in good times. They don't inspect when borders are open. But, you know, so then you've got buyers, agents, supposedly experts that um, are relying on, I don't know, what are they relying on in order to, to advise their clients? I mean, some I know have just sent local property managers in. I've heard some terrible stories. <laughs> It's a really interesting one because data-driven research, you know, there, there's such a place for it. And I, I know quite a few property professionals that just do it so brilliantly. Mm. But, you know, the importance of having walked the pavement and knowing the A-grade streets and identifying where there's troublesome properties, I think that's that's really vital. And so, you know, I'm definitely, um, I'm a locally based buyer's agent. There's lots of different ways that people do it. But I think, you know, for anybody who is reliant on on a, a non-local buyer's agent, uh, they've, they've got to be confident that that buyer's agent is very familiar with the area that, that they're promoting and obviously the growth drivers are articulated well and the person who is inspecting the property has to be completely aligned to, to that business and know what they're looking for. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are, are doing borderless investing models and I think it's really important to ask the, the right questions to have confidence in your BA before you just sign away um, a fee for, for someone going into another state. Yeah, so then if you've got 19% of people who are quite happy to buy without, you know, looking at property, <laughs> it just, it just beggars belief, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, and it was particularly surprising with this group. And I thought to myself, is the, the number of, you know, sophisticated or experienced investors swaying this risk profile to the riskier end of the spectrum because they've got confidence or is that a, um, a number that is is um, less than than the you know the general public and they're more cautious I don't know yeah it'd be interesting to tease that one out but mm. also could it be FOMO could it be purely that There's like you know, oh my God, I yes. missed out on growth. And so therefore I'll do it because, you know, and, and it is very short-term thinking. And obviously, you know, we're obviously catching coaching people to think long term because once you're in it, it's like um it's like a bad marriage, you know, it's not easy to get yes. out of. Well, what was what is interesting about this is we obviously did see price growth just, you know, take off when when we reopened. And and particularly for Melbourne, we had a lot of stop start with with our lockdowns. We had six lockdowns. So by the time number six roll, rolled around, we'd already experienced, you know, five times over what happens when the market mm. reopens. And it sort of takes off again, it leapfrogs. And so a lot of people were looking at the past and and looking into the future and saying, well, I don't want to miss out again. Mm. Let's just buy during lockdown. And it was FOMO initiated and it was people wanting to beat the herd. You know, when the gates open and and um, everyone gallops out, I want to be the horse in front. And so a lot of people did that. And the thing about a FOMO market is buyers are, are less fussy about the quality mm. of the asset. And it's all well and good to think that if you, if you buy something that's B grade and, you know, 10% property growth later, you could sell it for a little profit. You can get away with that if your time, your sale, right. It's a lot of wasted opportunity in, in my mind. But 
if you if you get it wrong and you buy at the peak and you've bought a b-grade property and then the fomo disappears and the market stabilizes it's a harder property to sell and you probably mm. will sustain a loss so there's a lot of risk in that that approach Yes, it is interesting stuff, isn't it? And I do see the same thing. And then and I certainly ca- to coach our clients to say, look, you, you, in a hot market, you're going to pay a premium, doesn't matter what you buy. So make sure it's on a grey property. You know, don't be paying a premium on a B or a C grade property. And um, and so therefore, that sort of takes that, that I don't know, you just said, gives you a different lens to look at it. Recently, mm-hmm. and this is just some research I'm, I'm doing at the moment, I was looking at the difference between paying sort of 5 or 10% over um, market, if you like, um, for an A-grade property and how that sort of stretches out over 10, 20 years if you compare it to, say, paying market value for a B or C-grade property, right? And obviously, looking at B and C, annualised growth levels are usually lower than an A-grade in the same location. Well, they will be lower than an A-grade in the same location. And, you know, a little thing that I just noticed, the actual difference that you pay if you pay a premium for a grade that may be five or ten percent over that itself the premium you pay doesn't compound if that makes sense in terms of it doesn't compound um as a difference as a negative difference against your gain over time it's just a one-off yes. And it, anyway, I've just that's I've got to learn to articulate this because literally, as I'm in there, just chewing, chomping these numbers, uh, playing with these numbers, I'm like, oh, look at that, you know. And paying five or ten percent over for an A grade asset over time compared to a B or C grade asset. So I'm actually plugging in and using real life, real life case studies to to demonstrate this. It, it's like. You know, a lot of people come to a buyer's agent and say, oh, I want you to get me, um, I want you to get me a discount, right? And I'm like, actually, you want me to buy you an A-grade property because I could overpay for an A-grade property, not that I intend to, but you could, I could, and you'll still be yeah. better off than if you got a discount on a B or a C-grade. Yeah, you absorb that premium um, as a property performs and we all know property is a long game. So if you're in it for long haul, you want to have the best performing you can. Yeah, but anyway, I'm just playing around with the numbers to demonstrate this, and it's just a fascinating stuff. Anyway, do you have a property Dumbo for us? I do indeed. <laughs> and I think it's important not to follow the herd just off, off the back of what's popular. And I think COVID might show us that. We've seen a lot of people embracing, you know, particular moves, whether it's moving up to Queensland or chasing a region, and I'm not suggesting that they won't continue to perform, and I'm very fond of quite a few regions. But do your own research and understand the drivers. Don't just blindly follow what's performing because past performance doesn't always equate to future performance. And we, we saw a lot of values challenged by uh, COVID. So a lot of personal, you know, lifestyle values challenged. Some will bounce back and some won't, but it's really important to be clear on your strategy and don't just follow the herd. Do you have an example for us? I think uh, chasing the region that's performed the hardest after the borders are opening up for the for the nearest capital cities could could be a dangerous move so for example if you know byron's done really well and at the same time as as sydney's had some tough restrictions well i'm seeing it myself in melbourne now that we're um we're in recovery and our restrictions have have almost completely gone a lot of people have really embraced the city and their love affair is is you know um, burning again for the city so I, I think it's important not to assume that that the city won't bounce back and if if you've got a lifestyle there or work there um, we can't just assume that the 
the differential in property performance that we've seen from regions versus our cities will continue to sustain because people will return. They will have to come back to work. Not everyone, but a lot of people. Yeah, I think there will be a bit of a U-turn, but we'll, that we'll maybe see that in the next year's survey, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, thanks, Kate. Really appreciate your time. And um, we'll put the link in the show notes too for people who want to get a copy of that survey. And, um, yeah, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for this opportunity and a special mention to the PTA crew. I know they worked very hard on this and our very own Merit at um, Reba. Monica, thanks for the opportunity. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo. (laughs) 